Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Are there people out there who change under moonlight? Welcome back to Paranormal Activity with me, Yvette Fielding. And this week, we're looking at the history of werewolves. The werewolf is a staple of the supernatural world and can be found in film, television, literature. And you may also see a few trick-or-treaters dressed as this creature in a few weeks' time. But did you know that the werewolf is a concept that is an awful lot older than you may believe? In fact, it's argued that the earliest surviving example of man-to-wolf transformation is in the epic Gilgamesh from around 2100 BC. Now, this great Sumerian Babylonian poetic work predates Homer's writing by 1,500 years and therefore stands as the oldest piece of world literature. There you go. Didn't know that. However, the werewolf that we know and love first appeared in ancient Greek and Rome in ethnographic, poetic and philosophical texts. Try saying that after a drink. These stories of the transforming beast are usually mythological, but some have a connection and basis to local histories, religion and cults. In 1425 BC, Greek historian Herodotus described a nomadic tribe called the Neri. These were magical men from Scythia. Now, I hope I pronounced that right. Um, now, this is a land, or Scythia, which is now part of Russia, which was said to change into wolf shapes for several days of the year. However, he could just be referring to the wolf skins these men would change into for warmth. In Arcadia, a region of Greece, the werewolf myth became integrated with the local history. Here, Zeus was worshipped as Lycaean, Zeus, Wolf Zeus. In 380 BC, Plato told a story about the protector turned tyrant of the shrine of Lycaean Zeus. Now, the story goes that he who tastes of the one bit of human entrails minced up with those of other victims is inevitably transformed into a wolf. Literary evidence suggests that cult members actually did mix human flesh in their ritual sacrifice to Zeus. One tale looks at the participation of a young athlete, Dam Archus, who was compelled to taste the entrails of a young boy during the sacrifice and was turned into a wolf for nine years. 
One of the most interesting parts of Plato's passage concerns this protector turned tyrant, also known as the mythical king Lycaon. This story contains all of the elements of a modern werewolf tale, immoral behaviour, murder and cannibalism. The passage I'm about to read is one of the only ancient sources that goes into such detail on the act of transformation. His description of the metamorphosis uses haunting language that creates a correlation between Lycian's behaviour and the physical manipulation of his body. He tried to speak, but his voice broke into an echoing howl. His ravening soul infected his jaws. His murderous longings were turned on the cattle. He still was possessed by bloodlust. His garments were changed to a shaggy coat and his arms into legs. He was now transformed into a wolf. Ovid's Lycian is the origin of the modern werewolf as the physical manipulation of his body hinges on his prior immoral behaviour. It is this that has contributed to the establishment of the murderous werewolf trope of modern fiction. Lycian's character defects are physically grafted onto his body, manipulating his human form until he becomes that which his behaviour suggests. And perhaps most importantly, Lycian begins the idea that to transform into a werewolf, you must first be a monster. For as long as authors have been changing bad men into wolves, we've been looking for the biological link between man and action. So, Is there a way to spot a werewolf in modern times? Are you ready? Here are some of the warning signs that you might be in the presence of a werewolf, according to the worlds of myths. Number one, were you born on the 25th of December? Born on Jesus Christ's birthday? Because of this, you deserve the curse of becoming a werewolf. The first mention of this comes from the 1961 movie, The Curse of the Werewolf. This one made me laugh. Number two, a unibrow and hairy palms. Something I had when I was smaller. Uh, These characteristics are easy to spot as long as the werewolf doesn't have a regular waxing regime. I think a lot of werewolves would probably not go in for waxing. Number three, a scar or symbol on their body. Now, it's said that some werewolves will carry a scar-like symbol, traditionally a pentagram, most often on the hand or the chest. It was also believed that the shadow of the pentagram would appear on the palm or forehead of their next victim. But this shadow was only visible to other werewolves. Hair on the inside of the skin. Now, this was one of the most painful ways they would check for werewolves during the witch trials. I didn't know this, but the witch trials and werewolf trials were sort of all sort of mixed in together. What those poor women and men went through, I just do not know. Five, love of raw meat speaks for itself really. Uh, Reflective eyes, number six, werewolves can be spotted in the dense forests and the darkest nights because of their reflective glowing red eyes and these can also glow in human form too. And number seven, reacts to iron or steel. German legend states that a werewolf will change back to human form if you throw a piece of iron or steel over its head when in animal form. I also thought there was something to do with a steel bullet or a silver bullet or something. Or maybe I've got the wrong end of the stick there. Now, Dr. Paolo 
Agina, I hope I've said that right, uh, or Agina, who lived during the 17th century, described symbols of werewolfism to his fellow doctors, including pale skin, well, that counts me in, weak vision, counts me in, excessive thirst, only for wine, dry tongue and eyes, ulcers and abrasions of the arms and legs caused by walking on all fours and howling until dawn. An obsession as well with wandering the cemetery at night. Well, I think that I tick a lot of those boxes there, especially the last one. One of the best werewolf movies I've ever seen is, of course, American Werewolf in London. Now, if you've never seen it, I urge you to, especially coming up for Halloween. Now, my favourite part in the movie, I suppose, and it's the most standout scene, is when our main character changes into the beast for the very first time. And I have to say, even though it was an 80s movie, I think it was an 80s movie or late 70s, um, the effects are absolutely brilliant. And after I saw that film, it really got me thinking. Were werewolves real? And if so, have there been any cases reported in the media? Now, I found a document on CNET and it's entitled Wolves Among Us, Five Real Life Werewolves from History. So I couldn't really find anything from the modern world, um, but I just found some of these old stories I thought you might be interested in. And again, forgive me because a lot of these names and words and places, I have the foggiest how to pronounce. So again, apologies. The first one is called The Beast of Gevorden or Gevorden. In the 18th century, the former French province of Gevorden was terrorised by the so-called La Bête de Gauvedin, the Beast of La Gauvedin. The beast was first spotted by a woman tending cattle in the forest near Langon in June. Her bull scared it off, but not long after it attacked and killed a 14-year-old girl. Over the ensuing months, sightings and attacks mounted. Those who had seen the beast described a large wolf with unusual red fur streaked with black, and it was prolific. According to a 1980 study, there were 210 attacks in all, and 113 of these were fatal. In 1765, King Louis XV decreed that the French state would help slay the beast. When the appointed professional wolf hunters, Jean-Charles Marc-Antoine Vermessel de Envelle, forgive me, and his son Jean-Francois failed to kill the beast, the king sent lieutenant of the hunt, Francois-Antoine, instead. Antoine slayed three giant grey wolves, yet the attacks still continued. It wasn't until a local hunter named Jean Chastel shot a wolf on June the 19th, 1767, that the attacks were declared over. Nowadays, it's thought that the beast of Gervoudan wasn't a single wolf at all, but many individual wolves. When France went on a wolf-killing rampage, these wolves were slain one by one until none were left and the attacks abated. Not that killer wolves were unusual. According to historian Jean-Marc Morisot, some 7,600 people were killed by wolves in France between 1362 and 1918. Our second case is the Livonian werewolf. Werewolf confessions could be quite peculiar. Take Thies of Kaltenbrunn, living in Swedish Livinia in the 17th century. Thies was widely believed among his neighbours to be a werewolf who had dealings with the devil. 
Local authorities didn't much care. After all, Thies was in his 80s. What harm could he do with a few tall tales? But when they brought him in for questioning on an unrelated matter in 1691, he voluntarily began divulging details of his werewolf lifestyle, although with many inconsistencies. According to his account, Thies had given up lycanthropy 10 years prior to his appearance before the judges in 1691. Before that, he and other werewolves would change into wolves on St. Lucia's Day, Pentecost and Midsummer Night by donning magical wolf pelts, although he later changed his story and said they just stripped naked and turned into wolves. They would then maraud the countryside, killing farm animals and cooking and eating them. When asked how wolves cooked meat, he declared that they were still human, not wolves. His story only grew stranger. He claimed that werewolves were the agents of God and would travel to hell to battle the devil and his witches, bringing back grain and livestock the witches had stolen. In fact, he said, he had done so just one year earlier, contradicting his earlier claim of having his wolf ways. When it was revealed that Thies was not a devout Lutheran, he indeed practised a form of folk magic involving charms and blessings. The judges ordered Thies flogged and exiled. What happened to the strange chap after that is unknown. The Wolf of Ansbach, or Ansbach. In 1685, a wolf was terrorising and killing humans in the town of Neusses in the principality of Ansbach in what is now Germany. This was not unusual, but the town's chief magistrate, Michael Lich, had just died. He was a cruel and improper man, and it was said that the wolf visited Lich's residence, so it was only a small leap for people to claim the wolf was Lich, returned as a werewolf for his sins. The wolf's death was not terribly eventful. The people organised a hunt and chased the wolf into a well and killed it. What they did with its body was pretty macabre, though. They paraded it through the streets, then prepared it for display. They cut off its muzzle, dressed it in human clothes, and placed a wig on its head and a mask on its face, so that it resembled life. Then they hung the body from a gibbet, so that everyone might enjoy the sight. After some time, the wolf was removed from the gibbet, and its corpse preserved and put on permanent display at a local museum. Because, of course, that's not creepy or weird at all, is it? The Werewolf of Alariz Widely thought of as Spain's first ever serial killer, Manuel Blanco Romasanta is unusual for a werewolf operating late in the mid-19th century. Actually, Roma Santa was an unusual case in a few ways. He was born in 1809 and had been raised as a girl until about the age of six, at which point doctors discovered he was a male. He grew up, married and worked as a tailor. When his wife died in 1833, he took up the travelling salesman trade, also guiding travellers around Spain and Portugal. His first known murder was Vincente Ferdinand's, the constable of Lyon. Ferdinand's was found dead in 1844 after attempting to collect a debt from Roman Santa. Rather than face the law, Roman Santa fled to Portugal. During this time, he murdered several people who had hired him as a guide. He was not a cunning man. Roma Santa was noticed selling their clothes and rumours started to circulate that he was selling soap made with human fat. A complaint was lodged and Roma Santa was arrested. He confessed to 13 murders, but here is where it gets wolfish. 
He said he'd been cursed with lycanthropy, but upon being asked to demonstrate his transformation abilities, Roman Santa declared that the curse had passed and he was no longer afflicted. He was actually acquitted of four of the deaths those forensic examinations found had been committed by real wolves. However, he was found guilty of the rest. A phrenological examination of Roma Santa by doctors determined that he had invented his curse and he was sentenced to death. This was commuted to life imprisonment on the request of a French hypnotist who believed that Roma Santa was suffering a delusion and petitioned a stay of execution so that he might study the man. An 1863 newspaper reported that Roma Santa passed away that year in prison from stomach cancer. The Werewolf at Bedburg One of the most famous werewolf cases is Peter Stump, a wealthy farmer accused of being a serial murderer, cannibal and werewolf in Ryland in 1589. In the years preceding Stump's arrest, the country town of Bedburg had been plagued with horrors. It started with dead and mutilated cattle, but bodies of townsfolk were also soon found in the fields. Initially, it was thought that a wolf or wolves were attacking, but the creatures evaded capture. Finally, in 1589, a hunting party managed to corner the wolf with its hounds. When the humans approached, they saw, according to reports, not a wolf at all. Instead, the hounds had cornered Stump. The most damning piece of evidence was that Stump's left hand had been lopped off. The wolf had had its left forepaw cut off. Since wolf and man had the same injury, wolf and man must be one and the same. Stump confessed, but it's a questionable confession at best. He'd been subjected to torture, including the rack. He said he'd made a pact with the devil when he was 12. He'd been given a magic belt, which allowed him to turn into a wolf. He confessed to killing 14 children and two pregnant women. He ate of their flesh and ravaged their bodies. He killed his own son and had a sexual relationship with his own daughter. He was sentenced to die in the most awful manner. He was fixed to a breaking wheel and had flesh torn from his body with red hot pincers. His limbs were broken with the blunt side of an axe so he might not rise from the grave. Finally, he was beheaded. His head was placed on a pole with the figures of a breaking wheel and a wolf on it as a warning to others. His daughter and his mistress were also flayed, strangled and burned. It is not known whether the crimes were truly committed by Stump. At the time, the region was deeply affected by the Cologne War. Stump was a Protestant convert and the region had been seized by the Catholics in 1857. His death was to the Catholics' advantage, as his considerable wealth would fall to them. In addition, Stump's death could have served as a strong warning to other Protestants. Now, that was a very interesting piece written by Michelle Starr. I absolutely love reading that. So, uh, yeah, we thank Michelle Starr for that. Now, when I've investigated old abandoned hospitals and asylums, there were always stories of patients becoming more agitated and upset when the full moon was out. 
Now, that's where the word lunatic comes from. It's the Latin, and uh, the word luna, which means moon. And many doctors and scientists notice that at the moon's fullest phase, the inmates would howl, scream, and become incredibly violent and agitated. So why was this? What power does the moon have on us as human beings? And can the brain react in certain ways to its phases? I believe it can, and it does. When we come back, I'll tell you about my meeting with a local Transylvanian woman who told me that they were scared to death of a real werewolf. And we hear another of your personal encounters. The Ultimate Podcast for Married at First Sight fans is here. This is Recapped at First Sight. The new podcast keeping you up to date on all the love, fallouts, drama and secrets as the Married at First Sight UK bride and grooms try to make happy couples. And we're your happy couple right here, in a professional sense, of course. Join me, Kat Shube. And me, former Maths UK groom Bob Voisey, every morning after you've watched the latest episode on TV. Plus, we'll have some special guests along the way enjoying our very own wedding breakfast. You bit the caterers, right? Uh, about that. Recapped at first sight. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
Do you remember last week when I told you all about my adventures in Transylvania? Well, whilst I was there trying to sleep but failing dismally, do you remember, as the myriad of dogs bayed and howled at the moon? I'm not kidding. It was absolutely awful. I don't think any of the crew slept a wink with all these dogs. And it is true, when there was a full moon, and there was one when we, when we were there, they would howl at the moon. Why do they do that? I remember one day, anyway, whilst taking a rest from filming, it was daytime, we were in this um, sort of the, the grounds of, of, of a castle that we were filming at, and um, lots of tourists were coming uh, in and out uh, in the grounds, um, and uh, whilst I was there having a little bit of a rest, I think I was standing outside having a cup of tea, I met uh, a local woman. Now, she was with her older son, and I asked them all about the dogs, and they told me that during the revolution at the end of Ceausescu's reign, all the dogs were let loose as no one could afford to feed them. Uh, so this was, was in Romania, of course, and Transylvania sort of, it, there is a border, but it's all it was all of the same under Ceausescu's reign. So nobody could afford to feed these dogs, so they let them all out and um, they all congregated in the countryside and lived in packs. I then asked... Uh, the the lovely lady and her son with a bit of a cheeky smile on my face if being in Transylvania there were indeed any werewolves well the son translated and his mother sort of gave a little chuckle at first and the son had a wry smile on his face but then that uh, chuckle soon turned to something a little bit of a a concerned look and then she began talking and she told me through her son's translation that in their village uh, there were several farmers this was a few years ago um, well now it would be wow nearly 20 years ago maybe more who whilst out watching their flocks of sheep at night had noticed an unusual large four-footed creature now they thought nothing really of it and perhaps a wolf but when their livestock began to be mutilated and that's when the farmers started to take it seriously Uh, and they then began to believe that they were dealing with some sort of beast a werewolf and it was prowling their lands and it was taking their livestock um, and taking all the blood out of their livestock, drinking their blood. Um, And they were so frightened that they actually began to leave offerings of meat outside their homes and on the land to stop the creature from eating their livelihoods. Now, I asked if the meat was taken and she nodded, yes, that they were. Um, They said their goodbyes. We said our pleasantries, I waved and they began to walk away. And then the woman turned her head back towards me quickly as she was walking, smiled and then cheekily winked. Now, had she been telling me a tall tale? I like to think not. Now, coming up, uh, we have this week's story. Um, But just to tell you, shortly after that, we shall be chatting to author and werewolf expert, Professor Daniel Ogden, who'll be teaching us a little bit more about this nocturnal creature. This week's story, though, comes from David, who shares his experiences with a Ouija board. Hi, Yvette. Uh, My name's David. Um, I'm a big fan of the podcast, and um, I was recently listening to episode nine, which was uh, mostly about EVPs, uh, but you also mentioned using a Ouija board to ask a spirit Um, if there was such thing as reincarnation. 
And um, after I listened to that, I um, I just felt absolutely compelled uh, to tell you my story. So uh, here it is. Um, my mum, her name was Sue Margolis. Uh, she was actually a novelist, and um, you can look her up. So she wrote kind of a racy, funny, chiclet type novels. Um, she was better known in the US than, than she was here. Um, but she tragically died of lung cancer in 2017, and it was just this awful, awful, uh, traumatic period, um, obviously, in, in, in her life and our lives as we sort of, as we tried to kind of get her through this terrible illness. And um, after she passed away, it just kind of, it just completely destroyed us, really. It was, it was just the most awful, awful period of all of our lives, myself, um, my dad and two sisters. Uh, we just missed her greatly and had often talked about wanting to find a way to contact her. But at the same time, we're, we're probably quite a sceptical family, don't really believe in, wouldn't really trust a medium as such. And anyway, um, in 2018, I was in New York. I was in Brooklyn, uh, where my sister lives with her husband and two kids. And I'd been there for a week visiting. And it was right in the middle of, um, you remember the east from the east in the States. Um, so there were flight delays and it was the night I was due to fly home. And um, my flight was horribly delayed. And so I was kind of um, uh, stuck in my sister's flat and we didn't have much to do. And um, the kids were asleep. And uh, we had a few whiskies and we decided... Let's do it. Let's let's do a Ouija board and try and contact mum. And we didn't actually have a Ouija board, so we kind of made one. So we uh, cut out letters from paper um, and sort of drew letters on and we arranged it on a coffee table. And it was this kind of glass oval coffee, coffee table. And we got one of the whiskey tumblers and we turned it upside down and we put our hands on the tumbler and we started asking questions. Mum, are you there? And... Lo and behold, um, the tumbler started moving and it felt really, really incredible, like something else was moving it. And um, I, I have a really good relationship with my sister and I 100% know it wasn't her. I obviously know it wasn't me. Um, anyone listening will probably be sceptical, you know, that, that, that one of us could have been manipulating it. And so I think you kind of had to be there to understand that it just wasn't that kind of thing it was this wonderful kind of moving experience and we asked all kinds of questions I, it, it, a lot of kind of family members were being mentioned yeah it was just incredibly moving it moved us almost to tears I think it did move us to tears several times she kind of saved her her grand finale till the end and um, I decided to ask mum is there such thing as reincarnation what's going to happen next just as you did which is kind of what inspired me to, to tell you my story and the answer I got back and I remember it to this day was Q U A M A N and we were kind of furiously scribbling this down as it was being spelt out and, and my brother-in-law was in the room and he's kind of uh, quite skeptical about all this kind of stuff and he typed it into Google and um, it was a Chinese brand of parking sensor. So we all kind of laughed and um, we kind of, we 
tried asking a few more questions and we were just getting more kind of like weird nonsense back and we kind of realized that the, the session had come to an end and um, it just left us with this incredibly wonderful positive affirming feeling and it was just this like wonderful chance to almost say goodbye to my mom and make sure she was okay and it was just it was wonderful we were really elated um and so it came time for me to leave for my flight and um, I got on Uber in the freezing cold and ice and just about made it to JFK and then my flight was delayed again and I was just in this insanely crowded airport with nothing to do. I was sitting cross-legged on the floor with my phone plugged in um, and um, I put my headphones on and I'd actually, because I'd recorded the Ouija board session and I decided to listen back to it again because it was just so fascinating I listened to it all and it was just brilliant hearing it the second time and got to the end back to this um this reincarnation question and as I was listening to it I just kind of thought I'll type the letters into Google again and just double check that you know we didn't miss this doesn't have anything any sort of like meaning we we kind of we were missing um typed the letters in and nothing really came up but um, as you know, sometimes Google says, did you mean, and it, it finds a little, like maybe a spelling mistake and realizes what it was you were trying to say. And it said, did you mean Q-U-A-N-A-N at the end? Because ours had an N. And I kind of thought, well, yeah, that could be because, um, you know, it was kind of a makeshift homemade Ouija board and all the letters were kind of moving about and the M, the way we had them arranged, the M was next to the N in alphabetical order. So yeah, it could well have been that we mistook an M for an N. You could kind of forgive that very, very tiny glitch in communication. Um, so I said, yeah, yeah, that's that's what I meant. And I clicked on it and I just got goosebumps the moment these search results came back because Quan An is a Buddhist deity. And it was just absolutely incredible. Obviously, I'd asked a question about reincarnation, which, as I'm sure you know, is very important in in Buddhism. And Quan An is really important as well. So if you travel in Vietnam, there are statues of her everywhere. So she's often been described as um, like the Buddhist Virgin Mary. She's super, super important. And there are different pronunciations of her name so she's often called Quan Yin as well. Quan Am is very much the Vietnamese spelling um, and I just thought this was fascinating and now in my in my flat in London I just have a little kind of a shrine in the living room for my mum. I have a little photo of her and, um, and a Quan Am statue and a candle and I light the candle from time to time um, and this story also might have a part two because it was very specifically this Vietnamese spelling so uh, I think we're gonna we're gonna go to Vietnam uh, one day um, and find out more about Quan Am and maybe speak to speak to a Buddhist monk and go on a bit of an adventure and see where this leads us so um, who knows there might be a, a part two to this story but um, it was just a wonderful kind of gift really just to have had that incredible sort of connection um, and kind of a, a, an intuitive feeling as well that she's being looked after by Quan Am. Maybe she is Quan Am and uh, she's also the, 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 um, the Buddhist, uh, Buddhist Bodhisattva, if I hope I've said that right, of compassion. And my mum was just 
such an unbelievably compassionate person um, and also kind of a badass female character as well. So I think if my mom was going to um, choose a Buddhist deity to follow, it would have been Kwan Am. So, yeah, it, it was a wonderful experience and I just wanted to share it. Hi, David. Firstly, may I say thank you so much for sharing such a fascinating experience with me. Secondly, I'm so, so sorry for your loss and the awful time that you and your family went through after your mother's passing. Isn't it a marvellous feeling, though, when a loved one comes through to you? And at first, when using the Ouija board, you do question your companions and think, is it them pushing it? That's why I always say, whenever you do a Ouija board or a seance, do it with people that you trust. But the fact that your mum was coming through, um, there would be no reason to suggest that another family member or close friend would, would, would push the glass. Why would they do that? That would be incredibly cruel. I understand, and I really do, it's a wonderful feeling you get when you get the correct information and it starts coming through and you go, oh, it's them, it's mum, or in my case, it's dad, oh my gosh, or my grandmother, this is amazing. They're really talking to us and isn't it marvellous to know that they're happy and that they're in no more pain? Another thing, and I know I've told you this before, but to mention that my dad told me via the tapping board is that a soul, a spirit can be in more than one place at the same time. So if your mum has reincarnated, she can still be your mum too. I hope that makes sense. Please let me know how your trip goes and I'm sure that you'll find some answers. I'm absolutely positive of that. Make sure that you take a good picture of your mum with you, David, so that you can show that to a priest and they may well be able to tell you if her past life was lived in that country or if she has been born again in Vietnam. But remember, your mum can still see you and hear you. She's with you always. Oh, by the way, I've looked her up and she has a beautiful face and I've just ordered Apocalyptic. I'm really looking forward to reading one of her many novels. Now, let's get back to werewolves. And this week, I am fascinated and really, really excited to talk to werewolf expert, Professor of Ancient History, Daniel Ogden. Welcome to the show, Jack Daniel. Thank you so much uh, for joining me. Now, you've written so many books. I mean, the list is endless on witchcrafts, ghosts, werewolves. Here's a quick list. I hope you don't mind. Greek and Roman necromancy, magic, witchcraft, and ghosts in the Greek and Roman worlds, dragons, serpents, and slavers in search of the sorcerer's apprentices and knights black agents and so so many more and what i love about them is that they concentrate on ancient stories and sightings of strange beings and dark magic now some of your books are fiction and others non-fiction so if you are a lover of all things dark then you must grab one of daniel's books so as i say welcome daniel and when did your fascination with werewolves witchcrafts and uh, witchcraft and ghosts begin um, well, it's great to be here, Yvette. Thank you. Um, as a child, um, uh, I don't know how I first cottoned on to it, but um, I loved Hammer horror movies, um, uh, which, I, yeah, which, I, was, <laughs> which I, wasn't, I wasn't allowed to watch, really. You know, and they, uh, well, I mean, you know, they were 18s, and but you know, they were on the telly late night, and uh, eventually I got to watch them, um, and I just love, I just love that. For me, horror is is Hammer. You know, I love the Dracula movies, Frankenstein movies, all all of those. You know, um, 
Um, that's that was really my first engagement with this sort of world, I suppose. And it's wonderful because um, you know you are obviously a professor of ancient history, but I love history. And the fact that you've married those two wonderful um, uh, genres together in your books, I mean, it's it's the world is open to anything, isn't it? And like I say, I always say this, seeing is believing. You know, you've got to have some sort of feeling or see something, especially in my world of, of ghosts, um, for you to actually change your mind. Do you think that all the accounts of of all the encounters um, with werewolves dating back hundreds of of years are mostly real or do you think they were sort of made up really for the sort of, you know, stories around the campfires? Um, yeah, well, I think it, I think what was going on with uh, werewolves in, in the ancient world was quite complicated. I think a, a number of different things were, were overlapping yeah. in ancient ideas of, of werewolves. But yes, um, Basically, I think the the most important strand um, in ancient werewolf thought was pre- precisely that um, camp, the campfire horror story. Um, I think before all the other uses uh, to which werewolves or the ideas of werewolves can be put in the ancient world, um, the first thing is the story. That's always that's always the most important thing. Yeah, that's what that's what brings these things to life, gives these things colour and meaning. So, what's your out of all the werewolf stories that you've heard? Is there one particular one that you absolutely love? Oh, well, from the ancient world. Um, well, the the, mm. the as I, as I say at the beginning of my book, um, there's re- there's really only one really good uh, werewolf story from the ancient world, and that's in uh, Petronius, um, who is a Roman author writing in Latin in the middle of the, the first century. Um, AD. So again, it's the, the story is told in, in a not exactly a campfire um, context, but actually at a um, a dinner party. Um, you know, after the main events are over, um, and they're you know they're well into their they're well into their drinks, the guests begin to ex- exchange um, these these uh, various uh, lurid stories. Um, and one of the guests, Nicaros, tells um, a story of when he was a slave, um, and uh, he was a slave with a um, uh, a married girlfriend, um, and one night he was off to see her. Um, he, so he, and uh, 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 he took with him a um, a soldier who was staying with his with his master. And as they were walking down the road, there were tombs along the side of the road, as uh, there often were in uh, in Roman times. Um, and uh, the soldier uh, stopped to take a pee uh, against the tombstone. But in fact, what he did is he. Um, took all his clothes off, uh, piled his clothes up, peed in a circle around the clothes, turning them to stone, uh, and then turned himself into a wolf and ran off. So um, the guy is terrified, proceeds to his girlfriend's house, but the, the wolf has already got there, and she tells him that uh, a wolf has got into the, the fold and killed some of their sheep, but, but the, one of their slaves has managed to drive a spear uh, through the wolf's neck. Um, the next morning, he's rushing back, home still in a state of terror he gets to the, the tombstone uh, the clothes are gone but there's just blood in their place he gets home and he finds the soldier in human form lying in bed uh, with a wound in his neck and the doctor tending to him uh, and he says at that point i realized he was a werewolf and i refused ever to eat with him again um it's cu- curious that he only figures out that he's a werewolf at that late stage having actually seen him with his own eyes transform into a, into a wolf um 
But I suppose that's, that speaks to this this very common motif of of, of werewolf stories, you know, throughout 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 history. You know that of the the identifying wound. You know the the, the the terrible wolf is wounded, and then later on a human is found with the corresponding wound, and that's how you know who the werewolf is. You know? That's a great story. I mean, do you actually think that? I mean, a lot of people say, don't they? There's no there's no um, uh, smoke without fire. So, um, do you think that there could possibly have been or still are werewolves that we don't know about? Um, well. I'd, I'd love to say I'd love to say yes in present company, but um, I, I don't think so. No, um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to, to believe that um, ancient beliefs were very genuine um, and truly held. But um, I don't, I don't, I don't myself um, believe it. What I would say is that I think it's significant that we it's significant that we're talking about werewolves um, as opposed to you know where any other animal um you know i mean famously the were rabbit um <laughs> yeah so you know but no, so i'm just thinking you know what you know but so but why werewolves you know and i think it's because paradoxically um i mean pe- people always think about werewolves in terms of sort of bringing together the the op- the polar opposites of the civilized human on the one side and the ultra wild terrible wolf on the other, they, they they see werewolves as sort of bringing those two opposite qualities together. I'm not sure it's like that um, because I think in many ways, because wolves, yes, can be wild and terrible if they get in the, into the sheep, but as as I'm sure you know, um, in their own societies, they are incredibly civilized. Um, and of all the sort of the, the big animals, you know, you might say almost almost the most human-like um, in their cooperative, civilized societies. Um, so I sort of think that the reason that uh, ancients thought of, so, so as I was chose as it were, wolves to be werewolves as opposed to any other animal, um, is because the, the wolves themselves are already kind of cross that divide between ultimate wildness and civilization. So, um, so you could say that wolves in themselves are almost werewolves, if you sort of mean. I do. So, what do you think then about? I mean, I, I've. I've talk about it earlier on in in this episode but what do you think about stories of people that have been you know imprisoned in asylums and had you know had the most terrible times and the doctors then um would say that their um agitation their lunacy would become even more um triggered when there was a full moon i mean do you believe i mean i do i believe that the human brain is affected by the phases of the moon and and could that have had anything to do with perhaps a werewolf not necessarily turning into a wolf but sort of rampaging through the the woodlands you know and um they're completely <clears throat> you know derived of any humanity and attacking sheep and so on and acting like animals maybe that's part, perhaps where some of it comes from um, well, possibly. Uh, uh, again, I don't think I'm uh, scientifically qualified enough to talk about the effects of the moon. Um, I mean, there's, I mean, it's worth saying that. I mean, some people have doubted the connection between the moon and werewolves in an ancient context, um, but I think it is there. I mean, just to go back to that that Petronius story I started with, there is a reference to a full moon shining as this all happens and if that isn't if that isn't sort of you know the context of the of the of the moon i don't know what is um but um uh, this 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 again this association between uh well lunacy for want of a better word um or um various forms of 
depression, whatever it is, I don't know, um, uh, and werewolves. That is that is an ancient one. That, that is actually an ancient one. And uh, so already they're talking about, well, well, I should say, the, you'll you'll know the word lycanthropy, the, you know this this posh word for for werewolves. Uh, well, in in origin, in ancient Greek terms, um, that that word was used specific lycanthrope, lycanthropia, was used for um, actually for a medical condition in which people believed they were wolves, um, and uh, and these people would sort of just roll around in graveyards around tombs, which is interesting. That's that that sort of ghostly connection again. Um, and um, so, so that, so that, uh, that there is that that association between the uh, again, I don't know, some forms of madness or de- or extreme depression uh, and werewolfism is is uh, is very ancient. That's absolutely fascinating. See, I didn't know where that word came from. Um, so, just before we go, um, Daniel, I wanted to ask you. Obviously, you must have seen American Werewolf in London. I have, yes. And what's your favourite scene? I'll see if it's the same as mine. Oh gosh, but it was so long ago. I know. Um, well, I'm sorry to, I'm sorry, I'm sorry <laughs> to say that the only the only scene I can remember is actually the initial big transformation scene. You know, with the with the, with the, the snout coming out. That's that, the one uh, I chat. That's that wonderful the, yes. stuttery way. Yes. You know, that's that's the one that sticks in my mind. And it's amazing, isn't it? When you think about it, I, I'm just saying the the effect there. I mean, it was a really frightening scene, wasn't it, to watch yes, and, and experience? Absolutely. Yes, yeah. absolutely yeah. fascinating. Um, and what book are you working on at the moment? I'm, I'm working on yet another book on on dragons. Um, uh, my fourth. Um, and uh, this is going to be basically, uh, well, I'm, I'm sort of re- returning to my greatest hits, as it were, in that this is a, a book about the intersection between dragons and magic, both in the ancient world and then in the, the medieval world. Um, you know, so magical magical methods to deal with, well, snakes as well as dragons, that they're, they're, they're closely related. Um, uh, but also, again, witches and sorcerers exploiting exploiting dragons uh, for their own purposes as well. Oh, that sounds absolutely fast. We'll have to have you back on there to talk. We'll, t- we'll do an episode just for you all about dragons and snakes and things. How about that? I'd love to do that. <laughs> Fantastic. Do that. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, and hopefully we'll speak to you again very soon. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Sadly, it's time to say goodbye for this week. But remember, get in touch yourselves with any paranormal stories you've had. And if you have had a paranormal or unexplained experience, then please, please let me know. Thank you for listening to Paranormal Activity with me, Yvette Fielding. And a huge thanks to all our lovely listeners for sharing their visitation stories with us. You can get in touch and share your own stories at this address. It's contact at paranormalpod.co.uk. We are on WhatsApp and the number is 075-999-27537. And on Instagram, our handle is at paranormalactivitypod. Stay up to date with the newest episodes by giving us a follow and we'll be back again same time next week. But if you can't wait until then, visit www.paranormalpod.co.uk where you can find options to get episodes a day early. Have a great week, stay safe and remember, things aren't always as they seem. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.